It's great to see you. My name's Riley. I'm the pastor of the church. If you're new and visiting, thanks for being with us this morning. Uh, it's such a privilege that we, as we've already said many times today, we get to gather and worship the living God. That is far out of our um, league, uh, but He, in His mercy, enables us to come together. Uh, enables us to sing praises to Him and to hear from Him um, in His Word, and that's what we're going to do now. Uh, we're in a series called Jesus is King um, from the Gospel of Matthew, and we're just going to chart our way through kind of passage by passage what um, the, the writer Matthew has to tell us about Jesus. And really, this book, it's not just, you know, a, a biography, take it or leave it. It leans out, as I said last week, into the congregation, into our hearts and says, live by this. Follow this man. Um, worship him. You've only got two choices. It's Christ for him or Christ against him. Um, but you have to make a decision about Christ. And so as we come to um, one of the second last messages on the Sermon on the Mount, um, there's you know, some interesting ethical teaching here. Uh, but remember, in all of it stands the banner. Jesus is king and he rules over all of our lives. So let's read um, in Matthew chapter 7, which flows from our message last week about do not worry. Uh, and now we're in to our relationships. Uh, the title of our message today is The Kingdom and Our Relationships. Let's read Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. Everyone's favorite verse. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Oh, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven Give good things to those who ask him. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Well, our God and Father, we ask that you may bless the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen. It's no secret that we live in an individualized society. For the past 200 years or so, the philosophical trends have been pushing us towards the self and thinking about who we are and um, without this reference to God and, and in some ways without even a reference to community, even the closest community, that of family. We live in an individualized world which its core maxim and ethic is the no-harm principle. This idea of do whatever you wish as long as you don't harm others, which is 
you know, in some ways can be a helpful way and can be, you know, it was brought up by John Stuart Mill in the 19th century and it was a helpful way of defining what jurisdiction the government should have and what laws they should create. But ultimately, that kind of individualized principle, just do whatever you want and the only restriction to whatever you want is if it harms other people, um, is quite a a weak principle. Uh, It doesn't actually have the the far-reaching effects that we wish it would. Um, As we've seen lately in the news, this um, kind of Australian Me Too movement and and this uh, uprising of, you know, concern about uh, sexual assault and violence against women in the workplace and even in private schools, if you've seen the the petition by the Kambala student. And there's been a push for this, you know, increase in education for young men about consent uh, and thinking that if we just train guys in consent, then they won't commit sexual acts of violence towards women. They won't pressure women. But these kind of ideas and these kind of maxims and principles clearly aren't working. This idea of just do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anyone else doesn't seem to produce the kind of society that we want. It's too individualized. It's not restrictive enough. It's not clear enough. It's not even defined what harm is. But as we as Christians come to read the Bible and we come to read something like the Sermon on the Mount, we can have a similar uh, tendency to individualize these commands. We can have a similar propensity to kind of look at what Jesus says and think of them as like two big chapters of moral axioms that I personally have to live by, which you do. However, we mustn't bring this personal or individualized perspective and stay there in it. And what we're going to see in this passage today is that Jesus wants us to look out from our own selves and into the community in which we live. And his maxim, his way of living as a follower of Jesus far exceeds the philosophy of our day. We read in verse 12, Jesus's golden rule. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law of and the prophets. And when Jesus utters that last little line there, for this is the law and the prophets, that kind of ends a section that began in chapter 5, verse 17 to 20, where he started to explain what the law and the prophets, that is the Old Testament, what that means for followers of him today. And so this kind of is the bracket of verses, you know, chapter 5, verse 17, all the way through to now, and actually brings to the end, really, the Sermon on the Mount, And then the next section we're going to look at is this big decision. Which way will you go? Which way will you choose? And this is how Jesus ends, with this talk about relationships. John Stott helpfully comments in his great commentary this. um, And you may have been reading this passage going, how does this all link together? Well, he says this. The connecting thread which runs through the chapter, however loosely, is that of relationships. It would seem quite logical that having described a Christian's character, influence, righteousness, piety, and ambition, Jesus should concentrate finally on his relationships. For the Christian counterculture is not an individualistic, but a community affair. And relations both within the community and between the community and others are of paramount importance. The one thing that I want us to see today is this, that kingdom righteousness 
is lived out in real world relationships. Kingdom righteousness is lived out in real world relationships. And I'm going to touch on three points today, headed under this basic question of how ought do we live as citizens of the kingdom? We're going to look at how we live with our brothers and sisters in Christ, point one, our opponents, point two, and our broader community in point number three. So let's jump into the text today and see how are we meant to live as citizens of this new kingdom. If you choose to seek first the kingdom of God and righteousness and you become a follower of Jesus, what ought that to look like in the day today? Point number one, our brothers and sisters. The first set of relationships that Jesus targets is how we live together in the kingdom community. Uh, This language you see in verses 1 through 5 is not about the stranger or the enemy, but it's actually those who you call brother and sister. Not literally brother and sister, but brother, sister, (laughs) those people that we live out um, with, particularly, and I would say, in our church context. And here's what he says, verse 1 and 2. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In the context of the Sermon on the Mount, you can imagine how necessary this type of command is. Jesus has outlined these incredibly high standard of righteousness and living, and now everyone knows it. So everyone, the thousands of people that are listening to Jesus, they've now been schooled by Jesus in what true righteousness looks like. And Jesus, the good pastor, knows what is likely to happen to humans when they hear about rules of righteousness. One response can be to feel completely condemned. The other response, and this is my temptation, is to then to start to become self-righteous. We see the rules and we see how everyone else isn't following them, right? (laughs) We, We now know all the commands and so we start to go, oh yeah, that person's not quite filling up to that or that, you know. We start to see it because now we know it. And so then Jesus gives this overarching command to his community, judge not. But we must clarify at the outset what Jesus means by that. Uh, He's not outlawing all judging. Um, Often this verse is misused and abused, especially um, by those who aren't actual followers of Christ, um, to restrict someone from observing any faults in someone else, uh, to saying, well, you can't judge people, you can't notice error you can't point out sin in other people's lives people say don't judge me you know Jesus said so or you know don't be judgmental and 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 that's all well and true and we can be sort of uh, if we come into those kind of conversations unarmed with theological precision we can be a bit like yeah I guess I shouldn't judge you you know like that's your life if you want to do that okay that's what you want to do but that's not at all what Jesus means in this passage We're not meant to be quiet and let a thousand immoralities go past. Instead, what Jesus means by judging um, has got to be defined by the rest of what we know about Jesus. Jesus himself judges. Jesus himself, in this passage, judges. He says, you hypocrites. So, first of all, he's making a judgment there. Um, The Apostle Paul calls people dogs, um, not the kindest kind of term you could imagine. And Jesus himself in John 7 said, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So what does Jesus mean? He says, do not judge, but then he says, judge. So what's going on? 
What Jesus means in this passage is he's making a general statement condemning a judgmental attitude. Jesus is condemning a judgy, critical spirit that sees the faults of others and then looks down upon them. He's condemning that attitude which seeks to point out and notice where other people are getting it wrong. And this attitude is deadly to the kingdom community. You hear someone pray a long and passionate prayer and you think to yourself, they're just showing off. They must struggle with pride. Someone is late to meet up with you or to serve on the team that you're on and you think, they are so selfish, lazy, unorganized. Someone brings a bad report to you about what someone else has said or done to them and you immediately believe it and you think, yeah, that person is like that. We uh, have this real danger of adopting a judgmental attitude. Ken Sandy, in his wonderful article, The Danger of Playing God, says this, when we set ourselves up to judge critically the qualities, words, actions, or motives of others, we are doing nothing less than playing God. He draws that from James 4, 11 to 12, if you want to look at that later. And this is the danger of this critical spirit, this judgmental attitude is that we are playing God. We assume that we think we know what's actually going on. We assume that we have all the facts and the data to be able to make such a judgment on someone's inward motive or on their value as a person or on why they did such a thing. It's such a danger. It's a danger for me. I find this tempting. This is a hard one for me. And the Lord was convicting me of it this week. born out of my pride and perhaps your pride as well, this self-righteous arrogance that thinks I can interpret what's going on. I know, therefore I judge. And the danger in this community is not just the judgment, but what it does to break down relationships. We begin to reinterpret all that that person does in light of this one judgmental thought you have about them. We begin to see the bad rather than the good in one another. Evidences of need of correction rather than evidences of grace. So this is what Jesus is talking about when he says, judge not. Be not judgmental. Be not critical in spirit. And then he adds a warning to it. That you be not judged. For, and this is the reason... With the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus warns this kind of frightening statement that is just as nitpicky or as sin-sensitive you are to other people, other people may be to you. But perhaps even more than that, Jesus is actually referring to God the judge. You see that this kind of idea of judge not that you may not be judged is actually probably bringing us to the heavenly courtroom. And Jesus is establishing a principle sort of like forgive others as you yourselves are forgiven or be merciful and the merciful, uh, you know, those who are merciful shall receive mercy. Those who are judgmental, 
Those who are consistently and constantly seeing the evil in others rather than the good, be warned. The Lord may have the same attitude toward you. That's the kind of warning that Jesus is bringing up here. So it really should, if you're a judgmental person, if you think your spiritual gift is criticizing, you should really rethink and think, ah, oh, am I going to be on the wrong side of God? So what do we do? Well, Jesus doesn't just leave us in that kind of frightful thought. He gives us a solution, verses 3 through 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus shows us how to avoid the sin of judgmentalism in our community. He calls first for humble self-examination before we get out the tweezers. He uses this kind of funny illustration of, you know, you've got the tweezers out ready to try and pick a bit of sawdust out of someone's eye, but at the whole time you've got this massive piece of wood protruding from your eye. And the idea is, like, look within yourself first, clean up your own life, beware of your own sin, and then you'll be ready to actually get the tweezers out. So first get the chainsaw, then get the tweezers, is kind of what Jesus is saying. And the benefit of removing the plank is, is numerous. Uh, number one, uh, you've removed a really embarrassing plank that's in your eye. So at the very first, rather than being judgmental and walking around banging people with planks and you looking like an idiot... Self-preservation is at least the first step in avoiding a judgmental attitude. You look like an idiot. I look like an idiot. We all look like idiots when we're judgmental. So at least preserve your own self, remove the plank, and then you're not as embarrassed. The second benefit is that you will then not be a hypocrite. The third, people might actually listen to you. It's going to be very hard for someone to receive a correction from you if you're whacking them in the head with your own sin. And number four... And getting to Jesus' point, you will actually be able to see properly. You see, our own sin, these logs, impact our ability to truly see the speck properly, to have a divine perspective. And upon removing the log, you may actually see the whole situation differently. You remove the log and suddenly you're like, maybe that wasn't a boastful prayer. Maybe they're just full of the Holy Spirit. And maybe I'm missing something, and so I'm judging them because they're passionate and I'm not, so I put them down. Oh, it's me. Or someone is late, and you've already judged it's because they're selfish, disorganized, uh, and they're just lazy. But actually, you know, they encountered a flood on the way to church, or, you know, you don't know the circumstance. And so you wait to make a judgment. You believe the best about that person. But what do we do if there really is a speck of sawdust in our brother or sister's eye? So we're looking around, we've done humble self-examination, we're waiting, but we notice, ah, there is that, like, sin that, you know, like, no one wants sawdust in your eye. It's like, really, you know, you should notice it, but they haven't noticed it. You're like, I'll just get my tweezers. What are we meant to do? Well, Jesus, by getting us to remove this plank, is actually preparing us to do this properly, to remove the speck with care precision, grace, and with the ultimate aim of helping rather than harming, cleansing rather than cutting 
down. Proverbs 27 verse 6 says this, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So Jesus' whole section is not saying, don't judge, never point out sin in other people's lives. He's saying, remove your judgmental attitude. Have a divine perspective so that you can do divine eye surgery on your brothers and sisters and help them. Because your heart is now changed. You want to help them. You want them to enjoy the Lord. It's not about you and, and, you know, and them. It's antagonistic. It's actually you helping to serve. One of the most painful but uh, life-changing experiences I had of this was my, my dear wife, Maddie. Um, we were in America, and there was a few situations where I noticed that um, there was this kind of this trend where people were making jokes about me, um, and they were making jokes and laughing about a particular thing I would do. And I was like, oh, they made that joke again, Maddie. I was like, oh, that's interesting that they did that. And, and she's like, Riley, I've got to tell you something. They're not laughing with you. They're laughing at you. And, and that little moment made me go, oh, really? You know, like everyone likes me. Like they're laughing with me, right? She's like, no, 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 no. They're laughing at you because this is true. And what was happening was that people were in a soft way sort of critiquing me for a, a, a pride, a boastfulness, a selfishness in my life. And by the faithful wounds of a friend, um, the Lord was able to do some divine plank removal. Um, I, was, I was actually really affected by this. We had a very long conversation. And for two weeks, the Lord worked in my life into such a way that I was, I was aware of this plank that had been whacking people everywhere I went. And I just, I was unaware of it. But as a result of Maddie pulling, just a, she didn't even have to say that much. It was just in humility and grace. And she just went in. Remove that speck and help me to go, oh, it wasn't a speck, actually. She got out of the chainsaw. <laughs> uh, but it actually helped me to it change a fundamental part of who I was. And so there is this beautiful grace in this passage. Like How are we meant to live in the kingdom? Well, it's not that we're just so grace-filled we never talk about sin in other people's lives. Is that we're so grace-filled that we realize, I am a sinner, I need grace. And then, in mercy, we come to other people and we say, have you observed, or I've just wondered why this happens, or I'm a bit confused, why, why were you late today, was there, was there a reason, or um, when you prayed that, can I just ask you a question about it? And we have this idea of, like, we want to help each other grow. But it's not because we want to put them down, it's actually because we want to build them up. And Jesus provides a holy way for us to do this. This is one of the hardest things we can do in Christian communities, actually to practice the divine art of speck removal. Uh, and Jesus gives us a practice in Matthew 18. He says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell everyone in the church. No. <laughs> if your brother sins against you, share it as a prayer point um, and get other people to pray for him. If your brother sins against you, go. And tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. When we see specks in each other's eyes or when people sin against us, we shed the judgmental attitude and we go to that brother or sister. And we say, hey, look, I've noticed this. And the, the goal is to gain them. The goal is to win them. The goal is to restore them. The goal is to help them rather than cut them down. 
So, we are to pursue personal holiness first and then pursue communal holiness by helping others. We pick up the chainsaw before we pick up the tweezers and we go about in the kingdom of God not being judgmental but going about the art of divine speck removal for the good of one another. Kingdom righteousness is lived out in real-world relationships. It's got to look like something. It's what Jesus' first command is in this ending section, is with one another. Point two, our opponents. Jesus now turns from the danger of being judgmental in spirit to guard our relationships against the danger of being undiscerning. So he, he kind of provides this balance. So the first problem is like always seeing the, pro, the ill. And the second problem is being totally undiscerning and not knowing how to truly treat those who are antagonistic. What do we do with people who are constantly antagonistic, rude and oppositional, no matter what you do? Have you ever had this thought, I don't think I should share the gospel with that person anymore? Kind of goes against our sort of missional vibe within the, the churches. Like, no, we should always keep telling the gospel to people. Jesus doesn't have that perspective. Read verse 6 with me. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Is there ever a circumstance when we ought not to continually share the gospel with someone? Jesus' short answer is yes. It's perfectly appropriate and you shouldn't do it. So what does Jesus mean here? Because it doesn't sound quite loving. It sounds a bit judgy um, and rude. But Jesus is warning against giving what is holy, that is the good news of the kingdom of heaven, to certain types of people. People that could be described as being pigs and dogs. And note, the dogs is not like labradoodles. Um, think mangy, hyena-type, wild pack, um, undisciplined dogs that would attack you in the street. That's the kind of dogs he's talking about. So it's a, it's a very specific circumstance. It's not just like all people. It's people that could be described by these very harsh terms. Pigs also were an unclean and vicious animal, more like wild boars, uh, and they were unclean to the Jewish people. So to use these terms is to evoke a, a powerful image. And Don Carson explains what this image, how it may have landed on the original people like this. Imagine a scenario like this. A man holding a bag of precious pearls, like blessed dude, obviously, um, confronted a pack of hulking hounds and some wild pigs. As the animals glare hungrily, he takes out his pearls and sprinkles them on the street. Thinking they're about to gulp some bits of food, the animals pounce on the pearls. Swift, swift disillusionment sets in. The pearls are too hard to chew, quite tasteless and utterly unappetizing. Enraged, the wild animals spit out the pearls, turn on the man and tear him to pieces. These terms indicate that Jesus is saying to not continually preach the gospel to people who, according to Carson, have given clear evidences of rejecting the gospel with vicious scorn and hardened contempt. Have you ever experienced people like that? They're not 
seeking to know about Christ. They're asking questions just to be inflammatory. Or when you tell them that their back is right up and they're instantly pouncing back with, well, what about, what about, what about, what about, what about? And it's not just the first time, it's the second, it's the third, it's the fourth time. They, they ridicule you in the work lunchroom for your faith. Uh, they're constantly trying to make you look like an idiot. That's the type of person that Jesus is talking about here. And his wisdom is, don't give them the holy message of the gospel anymore. It's almost an act of divine judgment on that person. The, the hardest thing you could probably ever do to someone is withhold the gospel from them. And perhaps the, the hope is, is that by withholding the gospel, this person will see your restraint and actually cause them to second guess about why they're attacking you and fighting you. If you notice um, Jesus and you follow Jesus' life, he encountered many people like this. And so if you read the Gospels intelligently, you'll see and give examples of when you could actually do this in your life. I remember when I was a youth worker at Barker College and I would teach a lot of students, a lot of, you know, arrogant uh, young guys who thought they knew everything. Uh, and I was, I was young, I was passionate. I was like, I can answer every question. I can quell every objection. I'll, I'll get in there and I'll answer it. And my, uh, my, my chaplain at the time just said, hey, Riley, Jesus never answered every question. Sometimes he asked a question back. Sometimes he just lets it completely go. And I realized that I was a bit consumed with thinking I could convince them. But actually what he was recommending was just wait and let the judgment sort of fall upon them and see what the Lord does. Jesus says of the Pharisees, leave them alone. They are blind guides. In the temple, they asked him a hard question and he says, well, I'll ask, I'll ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. But they didn't want to answer the question, and so the, the controversy went away. Paul at Pisidian Antioch, when they, the Jews raged against him, Paul says to them, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And even within the context of the church, Paul says to Timothy, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. It's hard words, isn't it? But there is a place for this. This isn't our go-to. This isn't like our first stop. But there is a place for withholding fellowship, withholding the message of the gospel to people who are arrogant, unwilling to listen, not seeking to learn. And we close our mouths and we let the judgment fall upon them. Perhaps for you, you need to stop sharing the gospel to someone at work. <laughs> Sounds strange as a pastor to say that, but that's where Jesus is going. In Proverbs 9, Solomon says this, Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. The gospel is the ultimate reproof, the ultimate rebuke to someone. And so there's a time to shut our mouths and no longer do it. Shinu was sharing a story in Life Group this week of when a, co a colleague was just berating him and berating him about his faith. And it was like this 15, 20-minute conversation where the guy just kept going. And Shinu said he was tempted to just answer back and kind of fight for the faith and stand up. But he just kind of, he shared that he just was quiet and was peaceful about it. 
and the, the situation went away. And then one of his colleagues came to him afterwards and said, wow, that was amazing that you didn't fight back. And that actually really perturbed the guy that was fighting you. can have that effect on people. Kingdom righteousness is lived out in real-world relationships. Jesus commends us when we deal with people as citizens of the kingdom to be discerning, to be careful, even when it's hard. It may pain you greatly to withhold the gospel from someone, but that's perhaps what you must do. The next relationship that Jesus turns to is between that of us and our Heavenly Father in verses 7 through 11. I'm actually not going to deal with this section because I preached on it a couple of weeks ago. Um, If you want to listen to that sermon, it's called We Are a Prayerful Church. Uh, But in that section, just to sum it up very briefly, um, Jesus commends us to the type of praise we're meant to be to God is dependent, devoted, and hungry. Dependent in that we come to him asking, seeking, knocking. Devoted in that we don't give up. We continually ask and seek and knock. And we be hungry that we, God loves to give good gifts and so we'd be hungry for more. We don't stop. We keep asking for more blessing, more of his kingdom, more of his grace. So I want to turn now to these final words in verse 12 and look at point three, our community. So we've looked at how we go about as brothers and sisters in Christ, how we treat people who are our opponents, our enemies. Uh, and I think that's going to get more and more practical, that verse. Uh, the more antagonistic people are towards Christianity. I've noticed that uh, there's a book that was released just recently called, like, We Are the Bad Guys. Uh, We're now the bad guys. It used to be that people felt bad, like we were self-righteous and religious. Now people think we're unrighteous because we're Christian. Uh, the, The moral ethic has changed. And so this idea of what are we meant to do with our opponents is ever more relevant. But finally, Jesus turns to this overarching principle of how do we live amongst all men and women everywhere? Read verse 12 with me. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is perhaps the most famous line of Jesus, perhaps the most quoted. And in fact, most religions and ethical systems have a maxim or an ethical principle somewhat akin to this. Um, As I mentioned in my introduction, John Stuart Mill in his uh, moral philosophizing talked about the no harm principle, that do what you wish others, you know, don't do to others what you would wish them not to do to you, okay? Um, Even the Buddhists have this as one of their first Um, of their five precepts of teaching is to do no harm um, and particularly it's physical harm to animals and insects and other humans Uh, in the just uh, just before jesus was teaching uh, there's a famous story of a jewish rabbi who taught something very similar Um, don carson tells this story of rabbi hillel who was challenged by a gentile to summarize the entire old testament law in the time that this kind of gentile guy could stand on one foot so if you know the Bible, like it's, the Old Testament is basically all of that. And the Gentile is saying, summarize all of that as long as I have to stand on one foot. Okay, so it's this, this great showdown. And the Rabbi Hillel says this, what is hateful to you, 
do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law. The rest is commentary. Go and learn it. Okay? Good. But what's the key difference between all of these maxims and Jesus's? Well, the difference is, is they're all set in the negative, whereas Jesus frames his in the positive, which is a billion times harder. Think of it. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. The negative says, don't do what you wouldn't want anyone else to do to you. So righteousness is, could be doing nothing. But in Jesus' command, righteousness in community with other people is active. It's positive. You actually have, you can't sit there and do nothing. You have to go out and act. The commentator A.B. Bruce says it like this, the negative confines us to the region of justice. The positive takes us into the region of generosity or grace, and so embraces both law and prophets. All our relationships, according to Jesus, are to be characterized by the law of love. Love says, what can I do for you? How can I lay down myself for you? It doesn't just say, well, I wouldn't do to you what I wouldn't want someone to do to me. It says more. I will go to that extra level to serve you, to provide for you, to be generous to you, to be good to you in a way that I would wish you would do it to me. But even if you don't do it to me, I'm still going to do it. It summarizes the law and the prophets. It summarizes the very heart of God. Go back and look at verse 11 that we didn't quite cover. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This principle is modeled to us by God our Father. He is a giving and generous God. He does to others what they do not deserve and blesses them and gives them grace and good things. And so Jesus here is commanding us and commending us and modeling for us what it means to be like God, our Father. It's not just no harm, but full-on love. It flows from our relationship to God to our relationship to others. So what would this mean practically? In a sense, the whole Sermon on the Mount is an expression of this. All those commands about, you've heard that it was said, now I say unto you, all these commands could be examples of this. But let's just apply it to the example in verses 1 through 5 today of judging. What does it look like in the context of our church to be treated as I would like to be treated by others? in the realm of like when you sin or when you do something wrong, how would you wish that other people would judge you? Or what type of attitude would I like all of you have toward me? Ken Sandy in his article says this, Instead of judging others critically, God commands us to judge charitably. Making a charitable judgment means that out of our love for God, you strive to believe the best about others until you have the facts to prove otherwise. If you can reasonably interpret the facts in two possible ways, 
God calls you to embrace the positive interpretation over the negative, or at least to postpone making any judgment at all until you can acquire conclusive facts. Summed up by this phrase, believe the best. When it comes to kingdom living and in our life groups and us as a church, we are to believe the best about one another. That's one of the best ways to remove the judgmental attitude is when people sin against us is to start thinking, oh, maybe, or or, or they do something wrong, not interpreting it as a sin, but to try and construe it in such a way that, no, perhaps they meant this, or perhaps what actually happened was this, or perhaps it didn't actually work out like that. Because wouldn't you want that to be how people treat you? That's how I want you guys to treat me. If I make a mistake, I don't want you to assume, oh, man, he just hates people. He just hates me. Like, no, 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 I don't. I just, I just said something wrong. I didn't mean to offend you necessarily. And this is how the Lord, I mean, this is actually more than how, uh, the Lord treats us even better than this. You see, when the facts are true and all revealed, we are deserving of judgment. So where to treat people, believe the best about people, but the Lord actually knows the contents of your life. And the Lord knows your sins and your motives and my sins and my motives. And yet, how does he treat us? Psalm 103 gives us a beautiful expression. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Whatever you would wish that others would do to you, do also to them. The God, our God and Father has removed our transgressions, does not treat us as our sins deserve, even though they deserve judgment, even though they deserve a cold shoulder or worse from the Lord. That's not how he treats us. And so the Lord Jesus invites us to be like our Father in all aspects of our life. And perhaps seeing it in this light of judgmentalism, we can see one practical way of doing it. Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, kingdom righteousness is lived out in real world relationships. The Sermon on the Mount and the teaching of the Bible is not these moral axioms that we just kind of know about and think about and reflect on and discuss philosophically. We actually have to live it out. And we live our life in the context of other people. And so it affects the way that we act with our brothers and sisters. It affects the way we act with even our opponents, and even in ways that might be surprising to us. And it affects the way that we act with all people. And in all these relationships, we are to be gracious like God. The law of love is to rule our hearts. And we are called and given this precious opportunity to do to others what we would wish they would do for us and so be like God, our Heavenly Father, in all our relationships.
Let's pray. And then we're going to sing grace unmeasured and rejoice in this great love that he has given us and let it affect every part of our lives. Join me in prayer. Lord God, I thank you so much that you do not treat us as our sins deserve. And would you help us to do the same to others? Would we believe the best? Would we be discerning? Would we be loving and kind even when we withhold pearls from pigs and what is holy from dogs? Lord, we ask that you give us wisdom. We need wisdom to know how to live in relationship. Fill us with your spirit. And Lord, I pray and ask that for anyone here who yet doesn't know you, who doesn't have their sins forgiven in full, God, would you save them? Would you lead them to humble themselves before you even now and cry out for this mercy that you are so willing to give to anyone who will humble themselves? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.